Brian, I'm so glad to have you on. Welcome. Thank you. What an exciting time. So you recently published a book. I'm holding it right here. And I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. But first, congratulations, hitting top charts across a number of categories, including organizational change. Is that correct? That's correct. How does it feel? Um, actually, it's a little surreal. Um, since uh, changing publishers and getting support in a, you know, in a re-release. This was a re-release of our of our first work done in 2018. It was amazing to see first the writing changes and then how uh, the market accepted the book differently and how it really hit a tipping point and just took off um, so quickly. So we're really excited. Um, you know, most people don't really, unless you've gone through the process, they don't understand what it takes. You look at this book, you look at the number of pages, you've got a couple hundred pages, and you think maybe you locked yourself for a, for a few weeks. And maybe some people do that. I know that when we wrote the book, The Science of Story, conducted hundreds of conversations. I feel like we've written five books, maybe 10 books in the process. And then you look at the final product to realize that it changed you, that the journey just just you know, made you the person that you are now and how you show up going forward. Has that done for you, Brian? It has. Um, it's been amazingly influential on us. Um, it's made my daughter and I closer. Um, I, I work with my daughter on this project. We wrote these books together. She wasn't involved in 2018 in the writing of the book other than the foreword, but she edited that first book and she helped choose the stories and match the stories to the lessons. And so we have grown as uh, individuals. We've grown as professionals. We've grown as father-daughter. Um, so, I mean, it's just been a, a amazingly uh, positive experience for us. And, and Brian, I'd like to spend a few more minutes before we jump into the topic of the future of people initiatives. You know, when I, when I looked at your book, and, and I, I've known you for years, and, and every time I walk away thinking, what an analytical and systems mind, yet you have a PhD in, in behavior change, you have endless years of, I shouldn't say endless, vast experience in the world of entrepreneurship. Most people, as they hear as children, the concept of there's no I in team, Right, they walk away with, okay, I've learned something. But not you. Over the years, you've realized that there is an eye in teams or you have a different view on that concept. I want to start there. When did it hit you to change this otherwise common knowledge? Well, actually, that part hit me back when I named uh, the company back in 95, 96. The name of our company is Individual Advantages. And it was back then that I understood that the individual, as we define it in our area of influence, is what's important. And as you know, we define that two ways. Singularly, one of us is individual. But when we come together and work with any number of people, one to many more people, when we do something together towards a common goal, we are individually working as one towards that goal. And while we might have our individual tasks and pieces and responsibilities, we're still working towards one common goal together, and that makes us individually the same. So um, 
we defined it back then. We've just decided to use this play on words to try to get people to pay attention to what our concept of individualism should be, that it's not singular, it's not selfish, it's not uh, uh, narcissistic, that it is. it truly feeds into the one is many and many are one concept that scares a lot of people and I don't think it should. It's almost like you systematized the way an individual thinks about their influence starting from within. So you're kind of touching on self-improvement books, you know, personal growth books, yet you're connecting it to common goals. Have you had any challenges to your concept? Um, you know, some people challenge it. You know, there's been so many people since this release that have really been uh, polarized by the political movements and, you know, we versus them and, you know, socialism and communism and all of the things associated with uh, groups doing the same thing or agreeing on the same thing or, you know, let's everybody be focused on the same thing. And it's not about that. It's, it's about humans and it's about taking the strength and the influence of individual humans who have a goal and you don't have to be aligned in any way except in that goal. Everything else about you doesn't matter if you all are, are pointing towards a goal, not color of skin, not gender, not sexual preferences, not political preferences. If you're all working towards one goal, all of that stuff means absolutely nothing. What matters is your contribution to the goal and the tasks needed to get us there where we're all going to be happy despite all of those other what I think are just, you know, uh, unimportant differences when it comes to these goals that we set as humans. These are simple concepts, perhaps exceptionally challenging to implement. There's so much friction, noise, there's so much going on. I actually want to reflect on one section of your book on self-deception. One of the most dangerous actions we can take when we deceive ourselves is justification or better stated, self-justification. Right? Almost the mind games that we're able to play to justify what we've done. And I, and I love the fact that your book isn't just all rosy, that you're going to places that are real, that are challenging the reader. Yeah, we do deceive ourselves and we have biases. Uh, this edition has a whole chapter on bias and understanding bias and how it affects us. And most of us are afraid to look in the mirror and even understand our biases. And a lot of us can look in the mirror and we don't even understand them. And those are the unconscious biases. But the subconscious biases we have are for a reason that we can actually tackle first. And they feed that self-deception and they feed that justification. And so we try to take people on a jury, uh, on a journey of unwinding that a little bit, shining the light on it, and then trying to tackle it in smaller doses and in ways that as humans, it can be a positive journey and a positive influence on us and anybody else that we uh, influence through our actions, words, whatever they are. Shining the light, right? Or, or creating the awareness of, kind of a st step one. Fascinating. And I know we could spend hours, Brian, discussing the book. 
I want I want to take us into the future of people initiatives. And there are many topics and goals that, of the organization that you and I could discuss. The one that we've spent chatting on for the last few years is safety. So as I do in these conversations, we'll talk about the goal a bit, then we'll talk about people initiatives that can create an impact on that common goal. And then we'll contextualize the current mindset of the people that are participating in any people initiative within organizations today. And then we'll ask some difficult questions of how do we get through? How do we get through to them? How do we get their attention? But let's let, let's talk about the goal of safety. If you wouldn't mind contextualizing for me, how do you think about safety? Is it industry-specific, functional areas? What is, what is your view on our discussion on safety for the audience to, to follow along? Wow. So safety is something that most of us take for granted. Um, you know, we assume that we get into our car, it's safe. We uh, are going to trust that the light is going to change at a stoplight and keep us safe. We don't really think about what goes into that process and what is required to keep us safe as humans. Safety for us has context and means more to us. So when we deal with safety, we try to break it down into something that is more palatable. And not that safety isn't palatable, but a lot of times it's because it's taken for granted, it's ignored. It's that comfortable focus. And what I mean by that is, is we ignore safety tips. We ignore the things that might help us because it, oh yeah, I already know that, but do we, do, are we paying attention to safety? We still text and drive. We still look at our phones. Um, uh, we still don't look both ways when we're coming up on a green light. I could go on and on about the things that we have comfortable focus in in everyday life that involves safety. And we're trying to make people more aware that um, safety is important and that it takes focus and it takes slowing down and it takes being in the moment, in the now, uh, to maintain safety, which is just one part of life, but uh, that, and if we do that, it just comes. And, and, and there are high risk environments and situations. Of course, you mentioned texting and driving on a personal side. On the work front side, there are environments where safety could mean life or death. This could be oil and gas, this could be construction industries. My understanding is because of your work, you're exposed to hundreds, if not thousands of organizations. What are some of the industries where the stakes are the highest to ensure that safety is done well? Yeah, well, construction obviously is right up there for us. Uh, oil and gas right up there for us. Um, and uh, we have huge initiatives with our clients in those areas. Um, uh Mike Rowe has a safety third program where he actually makes safety like not the first thing or the second thing, but the third thing. And his point is, is that at number three, is it any less important than number one? And it's a different play on what we just talked about earlier. Um, any type of environment that puts a human uh, at risk or offers an opportunity for a human to be at risk that... Um, creates uh, a challenge to uh, any basic functionality. And I call basic functionality walking, talking, listening, uh, driving, riding, 
uh, participating in, as a second person where other humans are involved and there's more than one thing going on around you uh, is a high risk environment. We have, can I tell a quick story? Absolutely. Love stories. Uh, we're heavily involved in the kitchen exhaust cleaning industry and uh, those people are on the roofs all the time. They're constantly on rooftops. They're constantly working around grease and oil, which is slick, and they're dealing with machines that are heavy. And you would think that's where the danger comes comes from, and that's where you would hear injuries come from. But going back to texting, somebody passed away because they were texting while they were on a rooftop and walked off a roof. Oh, they were literally on their phone texting while they were walking on a roof and walked right off. So that's what we mean about comfortable focus and getting too comfortable in our environments and and not having situation awareness and not remembering where we're at in this present moment is so important to safety because just that would have saved his life. It, it just even beyond not texting, just realizing that he was on a roof and he shouldn't be moving in that environment. Um, the simplest things. What, what a tragedy. Um, and let's, let's talk about the simple things, or, or in other words, the common sense is an always common action. We understand that safety could be addressed through processes and their structured approaches, but in many ways, humanity is humanity. It's up to the individuals to, back to your book, is, is to participate toward the collective goals. Um, what are some of the initiatives that you see most common um, in order to support that, in order to support focus, to support awareness, to create as much intentionality about common sense being common action. So the, the, the most visible, obviously, is the, is the move towards, you know, brighter colors, the oranges, the greens, and in and, and, uh, adding that color to the clothing that's being worn by people who are in these environments where they're inherently at risk. So it makes people more visible um, and it makes people pay attention a little bit more. You know, the simple things of glasses and hats and stuff like that, but those things are forgotten and guys leave their glasses in their trucks or they leave their helmets in their trucks or they don't wear the right shoes because, well, they didn't, didn't grab them. And we use a passive aggressive way of helping people learn those habits. Our clients put safety messages all over the place. We put them on the documents. We put them in their trucks. We Every piece of paper, uh, everything that a person touches has a safety message on it. And that puts safety in front of their teams all the time. And what happens is, is that subconsciously, it is a learned trait. And as they go through the toolbox talks and the safety training. It's reinforced by their environment, always flashing to them these safety messages. It's also included in all of our uh, company to team uh, communications. There's always a safety message. We always leave with a safety message in these environments. And that includes even in these offices about situation awareness and paying attention to who's at the door. Uh, we say things like, you know, be careful driving home, just little tiny phrases and little tiny things that you do repetitively over and over uh, in all environments can have a major impact. I can only imagine environmental cues 
keeping it front front of mind, top of mind, I should say. Um, but moving into communications and moving into behavioral elements, um, let's talk a bit about, this is my perception, but Brian, I'd love to hear yours. Uh, we've never had as short of an attention span as we have today across our society. We've never been more stressed dealing with anxiety and challenges. You mentioned whether it's politics, economy, health, social, you name a topic. And then for some, bring in virtual or hybrid work environment that brings its own set of unique challenges with it. Would you agree getting, capturing attention, getting through to folks is harder now than it's ever been? Oh, most definitely. Um, you might not remember, but my dissertation was technology-induced attention deficit disorder. Right. And I wrote that dissertation in 1999 and 2000 before Facebook was even a thing and before social media was a thing. We were already seeing shorter attention spans. We were already seeing humans demanding uh, information faster and demanding things get done faster. Back then, they were demanding multitasking as as an asset to a human, and we know now that it's not an asset. Um, but yeah, it's hard, and I think the move to the bright colors, the visualization, uh, um, the participation that goes on in toolbox talks, and some of the other human interfaces that we're having in these risk environments is helping to slow that down, and you know, there's been a big push recently among thought leaders about the slowdown movement. It's our biggest chapter in our book. And getting humans to slow down is proving to make them more efficient and actually make them faster because there's less mistakes. There's 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 less injuries. There's less errors. There's there's less uh, uh, miscommunication. There's less confusion when we slow down. Things are clear, which means we can do things without error and without confusion better. I couldn't agree more. And the timing of this conversation is extraordinary. My son came home about two hours ago and he watched a TED talk about the impact of attention span. And he came home and he said, Dad, I'm not going to listen to music while I'm setting up for this podcast. I'm not going to listen to music while I'm doing the, f the next set of tasks. Just because, wow, the benefits of letting our minds wander, the benefits of pausing, the benefits of checking out of the continuous stream of information that is now creating all kinds of chemical reactions within our bodies. It's an escape. Information is an escape from our present. Um, so Brian, what I would and, and you you are right. We did speak about your disser dissertation. Just a, just a quick question there. If you were to go back with what you now know to revisit and update your dissertation, is there a quick summary where you could say, Adam, I would just add, you know, the the attention span is instead of X now is ninety percent less, and everything else stays. Is there one big uh, update that you could make? Um, not really. I mean, yeah. The short attention that the the attention span is much shorter than I ever anticipated it would be. I never thought that it would extend beyond the workplace. I didn't foresee, uh, you know, the computer in your back pocket that runs your whole life and your whole communication structure, or at least eighty-five to ninety percent of our communication is done out of a phone or out of a computer. I didn't foresee that part of it, but that just amplifies and multiplies the level of distraction that we're dealing with as humans, which 
amplifies and multiplies uh, the level of anxiety and, and the level of uh, in, uh, anticipation and expectation that we have as humans now, which is really feeding really where we're at, this conflict that we have with ourselves and with others over time and expectation and all the, the all the things we talked about earlier, that just feeds it even more. Couldn't agree more. So, so Brian, let, let's turn our attention a bit toward the future. And um, of course, our goal is safety. We discussed as part of safety, some of these common sense practices, awareness, focus, being in the moment, not letting yourself get into this fully subconscious state where, you know, the body's moving forward while the mind is somewhere else. And uh, we talked about how difficult it is to get through. And I know it's a bit counterintuitive, but in the way I think about it, how did they get through? How did social media get through? How do ads get through? How do they get through to folks in this modern mind, whether we like it or we don't? So the question that I'd be curious for us to unpack is, what is a future state that you think that could help to improve safety through people initiatives while meeting them where they are? What are the ideas that are percolating in your mind? I don't know if it's a year out, five years out. I don't know if you want to go all the way into virtual reality aspects of it, but I'll take me to where your mind goes. How do we continue to solve this leveraging technology in the future? Well, introducing the, uh, the social, the digital social aspect of communication delivery uh, in the environments where we're influenced by safety or learning about safety is probably one of the best ways I think for us to do it. We inserted into the way that we use our website or intranets or our texting um, or anything like that. So we already try to, to feed through the places where people are paying attention on their phones. Um, we use uh, SharePoint and a SharePoint page, and we deliver data through Teams, and we mass push regular updates in these mediums because we know people will look at their phone. We know when their phone goes off, they're going to pay attention to it. We know that if we tell them to be part of a phone, like a, a, a YouTube video, they'll watch it. So we also prepare videos uh, using technology that delivers it in that same media because we know that they'll digest it there. The other thing it does for us is it gives us some control over knowing who's watching, if they're watching to the end, who's not watching. And it gives us feedback on our teams and metrics that we can use to help us understand who's not paying attention, who's not digesting this information and ask them why. And some people don't do well with that type of learning. They would prefer to have more direct one-on-one -on -one, or on paper, or some other participatory learning program. And we don't know that either. But what we have done with media and digital is given ourselves an opportunity to get those metrics and use those metrics to help us define and develop better, more direct learning opportunities for whatever topic, specifically safety here, to everybody in the organization, not just one or, or a group. I want to try to fuse two concepts you mentioned. Again, context is safety, safety, safety for this conversation. You mentioned data. Are they engaging? Are they not engaging with the videos? So, uh, incredible signal. And then the second is they're different. 
Some, some individuals want to see it via video, some on paper. But maybe even further, when we look at data, we can look at the ages. They want to look, have a different length video, perhaps different type of video, even if it is a video. How do we think about, and you know I'm very passionate about this topic of uh, personalization and relevance that we can learn from the world of marketing, that we can apply inside organizations to make people initiatives more impactful. So Brian, what, what is this kind of futuristic state that we can picture based on the learnings you have where safety becomes easier when we look at data? I shouldn't say safety becomes easier. Safety, uh, the bar is raised. We can create more impact to create safer environments. So by merging data with the idea of personalization and relevance. Yeah, I mean, I think it's happening. Um, if you look at the LMS programs that are out there, if you look at the apps that are out there that support distribution of data and engagement and measuring engagement, we're seeing the fusion of learning, humans, and, and safety topics. And if you go out and look at LMS as one of the most sold uh, platforms when it comes to learning management systems revolves around safety. And safety is such a broad uh, thing because there's so many different aspects of safety. There's so many things nowadays that feed a safe environment. And it all starts from situation awareness, but then you can get down into the details of you know ladder safety or uh, rooftop safety or um, confined space safety or electrical safety or, and, that's a lot for people to digest, but the digital world and having short attention spans actually feed into better learning because we can take individual pieces within a very complex safety subject and deliver it within context of how humans are interacting with electricity, let's say. In the old days, you'd read a whole book about electric safety, but if all you're working around is light sockets all day, and you're never going to be around anything, we can now package that and deliver that safety training to the point and in a way that they'll pay attention and listen. I love that. Actually, you just blew my mind there, Brian. I had to take a moment because thinking about the context of not just their industry, maybe not even the project, but their specific function and that the safety applications for that specific function. And you have this information as the organization. You know exactly what they're going to be doing on site today, tomorrow. Um, that is that is that is fantastic. As we think about the, the the future of people initiatives in context of safety, I'd like to talk about who owns it. So one of the first books I read about um, creating habits within organizations referred to an oil and gas company years ago, where the incoming CEO that was taking on safety challenge simply said, "It's my goal number one." Zero, zero incidents until we reach that point. Every incident, call me day and night. I will be involved in every single one, both to identify it and then to figure out how we can prevent in the future. And they did indeed reach zero um, incidents and had the highest value of, of their stock ever in history. So I'm curious, Brian, as you're talking to the market, what's the spectrum of who owns safety within the organization? Well, first, everybody owns safety from the receptionist to the CEO to the ditch digger to the supervisor to the drivers. 
And if you are not uh, disseminating and teaching safety through the entire organization, you're creating gaps. You're, you're losing opportunities to have a safer environment. When uh, uh, teams come in and interact with your office staff, if your office staff work in a safe environment and have safety as a conscious part of what they do, even though they may not leave the office, and you start having those discussions and they can participate in them, In them, it makes the topic better. Um, when you have drivers who know contextually what a safe work site is supposed to look like, not just for themselves, but what it looks like outside every time they roll up to a job site, every time they walk through the doors of a job site, they can help support a safe environment. They can help train. They can help um, tap somebody back in the right direction. They can help call out. And that's all part of the learning process. And when you allow that to happen in a positive way, um, not in a way that you're in trouble, but I noticed you weren't wearing your glasses. Maybe you want to put your glasses on. Remember, safety third or safety first or whatever the, the mandate is in your organization. When a driver tells a, a, a laborer that, there's no animosity, there's no friction, there's no let's fight about it or don't tell me what to do or that's not your job. It's just accepted and you keep moving forward. You're creating a culture of safety. Right. It, it's the bedrock of the organization. It's an interesting question. Sometimes when I say who owns and everyone, my mind goes to well, then no one owns it. Right, it's one aspect because who the question I think is better: who is accountable for it? Who who who? Where does the buck stop? Is it the CEO for organizations that have safety as a concern, or do they talk about it? But then there is a couple levels below, and that responsibility lies there. So I'll double down. I'll I'll double down, Brian. Who who is accountable? in safety, maybe either best practices from your perspective or from what you're seeing in the market and if there's a gap? Yeah, so you, I think you hit a, a pretty good point there where, you know, a lot of people will say, well, the buck stops at the CEO. If you ask the CEO what, you know, the safety standards are of his company, there's probably a high percentage that couldn't tell you uh, much about the, the, the details of the safety standards. Um, you know, I go back to that answer and I know it might not be the answer you're specifically looking for, but everybody does own it. And if you have a, if you have a culture of safety, it starts at the top and it goes to the bottom and it starts at the bottom and goes to the top and people accept safety and people accept that responsibility as part of their day to day uh, area of influence in their in their responsibility all the time. And you have, when everybody is brought up in this culture from day one of onboarding or day one of change management, because you might have companies that are changing. If you have 10 people, you have, you know, 10 sets of eyes always focused on safety. If you only have one person who's responsible uh, people will shirk it off. That's not my responsibility. It's not my job. Joe's got that for us. And our team, if you ask our team who's responsible for safety and you go to a job site, um, they'll tell you we are. And they use the word we. If, if you ask him, who do I talk to about safety, uh, the safety standards or the safety rules or anything like that, they have a specific answer for that. But 
safety as a culture requires the entire culture to be involved, not just one person or one small group of people. I, I appreciate that position very much. It means the bar has to be set at we need to create a culture of safety. It has to be part of our DNA. And that probably involves every aspect of the employee experience. Onboarding, leadership conversations, whether it's town halls or your regional or your supervisors, we know managers play a humongous role in, in someone's career. I think it's 70% plus of the variance in the employee experiences about the manager. So I, I, I appreciate that very much. Brian, How? what are a couple best practices for how companies can create a culture of safety? Well, for one, it's adopt a safety uh, program that's in context with what you do. Um, and what you do means that if you have clients that you go to that have risks, their safety concerns become your safety concerns. So you have to understand uh, that you might have influence on your safety program that isn't in your thought process because you're only thinking about your world. But if you have a driver that drives on to, let's say, you know, uh, a construction site that is going to be full of holes because they're doing a lot of digging and things like that. You have to understand that aspect of safety. So your your understanding of safety needs to be contextualized. So understand that first. When you decide that you're going to do that, include the whole company. And when you include the whole company, uh, then you have to include HR so that Every single person that's hired before they step one foot into their position, they've gone through their safety training and they've completed their safety training and they have a complete understanding of what that means to the organization uh, uh, throughout the organization. And I think that's the foundation of safety or a safety culture can be that right there. Makes perfect sense, and, and it also brings our conversation full cycle. We started with I, which led us to we and the goals. From goals, we went to safety. We talked about the initiatives. When we came back to it's all about everyone who's participating to create that culture of safety. And I'd like to leave on, on a last question, and I want to go back to your book. And you mentioned that your daughter was involved in helping you look at the stories. And, and, I, and I get real passionate when uh, parents working with their kids around their passions. Um, was there a story that she found that was most impactful to include in the book? Was there something that got her really, really excited saying, Dad, um, we got to make sure to bring this up? Um, I think she really enjoyed the slowdown uh, chapter the most. When we were writing this, she had just come out of college and uh, you look at what she wrote in her forward early on about being lost and how we helped her find herself. It was really the slowdown stories, how easily it was to be distracted by life and some of the funny things we talk about that happen from not knowing where things are in a house that I lived in for six months to forgetting my pants and driving halfway to work uh, without a pair of pants on. Um, and how we get in these cus cus cu comfortable focuses and life just passes us by and to get life in focus you have to slow down so she really resonated with the stories that specifically showed how fast life can go and how much you can miss uh 
when you're not in the now and you're not paying attention to what's going on in this very moment. Aiden, are you, my son is listening to the podcast. He's supporting me, and he was just saying, Dad, I may want to do my own podcast, helping teenagers like myself slow down. And uh, maybe the your daughter and my son can get together and, and talk about how they could create impact as well. Brian, this was a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. I'm sure our audience appreciates your wisdom. Well, thank you. Uh, and thanks for having me on. Awesome. Over and out. Bye. Bye.